0: As we continue our series, working through the book of Titus, asking the question how to be a healthy church and why does it even matter? I have a question for you Is authority bad? Is authority bad? Many people today are highly suspicious of authority, many feel like authority can be inherently evil from the ways that those in authority have abused and oppressed others. Because of the many examples of sinful people abusing authority, it can be tempting to want to do away with it completely. The Bible, though, tells a very different story. It certainly highlights abusive authority, but it also speaks of authority as a gift from God. When it talks about authority in the local church, God's word talks about elders being gifts to the church. And we see the priority of authority in the local church and uh, elders specifically as we look through the repeating pattern through scripture of church planting. We see a threefold pattern that repeats itself over and over and over. Step one make converts by preaching the gospel. That's step one. Step two, strengthen believers through discipleship and instruction. And then finally, three, appoint elders to carry out the work that has been started. So make converts by preaching the gospel. Strengthen believers through discipleship and instruction. And three, appoint elders to carry out the work that's been started. One of the most succinct examples we find in Acts chapter 14, verses 21 through 23. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen. It says, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations they must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So threefold pattern. That we see there very explicitly within only a few verses. But we see all throughout the New Testament. Make converts by preaching the gospel. Strengthen those new believers through discipleship and instruction. And appoint elders to carry on the work. Well Paul has been with Titus in the early gospel work on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean. And Paul clearly articulates that Titus is to continue in this kind of work, this, specifically this third step, that he needs to put what remained in order and to, to appoint elders. We see this right away in our passage in Titus chapter 1, verses 5. It says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So we see very clearly they're working on that third step, that third step in this church planting uh, movement that they 're doing, but we see that this passage doesn 't only end there with just this kind of generic appointment of elders that Titus is to go and find the first you know half a dozen people and just say, "All right, you guys are elders let's let 's roll with this that 's not the way that we see that happen because God cares deeply about the church cares deeply about the church, and so actually the, the majority of the texts that we 're looking at this morning and the majority of these texts that talk about elders is talking about their qualifications the the qualities that these men must have to shepherd Christ's church. And this is evidence of God's kindness because God knows our sins and our failures. He knows, of course, how sinful men will be tempted to abuse the authority that's been entrusted to them. But we need to put as much care and give as much attention as God does in his word in selecting elders Or else we will end up with disqualified elders who abuse authority. And so this is why a passage like this matters very much to the whole church. This is not a passage that only elders and prospective elders are to study in their leisure. This is a passage that matters to the whole church. Because there are very strong words in the Bible for false teachers. We're going to see this next time we come uh, to Titus chapter 1 in our next uh, sermon through this book. We're going to see through ten, uh, verses 10 to 16 of chapter 1, this, this confrontation of false teachers. So we see strong words. But we also see in passages like 2 Timothy 4 that it is the members of churches who are held accountable for the teaching that they choose to submit to, that they, that they seek out. Passages like this matter to the whole church. And this is not only just relevant generically to the whole church, this is very relevant to both those who aspire to the office of an elder and those who are elders. But I hope you see what New Testament scholar D.A. Carson observes. He says this, Perhaps the most extraordinary thing about the biblical qualifications for elders is that they are not all that extraordinary. Perhaps the most extraordinary thing about the biblical qualifications for elders is that they are not all that extraordinary. These qualifications and characteristics that we're going to see in Titus chapter 1 are almost completely relevant to every Christian. All Christians should aspire to these things. And so each of you use this this morning as an opportunity for self-reflection to look at what it, consider what it looks like to live a life of integrity following God. But our big idea from our passage this morning, from Titus 1, verses 5 to 9, is this. God calls men of character to shepherd his church. God calls men of character to shepherd his church. We're going to consider this by looking at what churches need and what elders need to be. What churches need and what elders need to be. If you don't uh, have a Bible with you this morning, either because you didn't bring the one you have, I would encourage you to head on over there and grab one. I think you'll be uh, helped. This is true every week, but as we go through this uh, passage this morning, there's a list of a lot of qualifications, and so for you to be able to track along well, I think you'll be served well by having a Bible in your lap. Uh, And if you don't own a Bible, I would encourage you to take that Bible, use it this morning, and take it home with you. That is our gift to you, uh, and so please do uh, grab one. Uh, but would you turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And once you found it, would you stand for the reading of God's word. This is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained into order. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. And so first, what churches need We find our answer, as we've already looked at, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Right off the hop, Paul reminds Titus of what he's commissioned him to do, to put things in order, and specifically to appoint elders. And so remember this pattern, that threefold pattern. Proclaim the gospel, make converts, disciple and teach, and then appoint elders to continue on this work. Titus is one of Paul's most trusted companions Earlier in his life, he was sent to uh, the church in Corinth. And if you've read 1st uh, or 2nd Corinthians, you know what a nightmare uh, Corinth was, what a disaster that this church was. But he sent Titus there, and Titus went and did good, faithful work. And now Titus is in Crete, where Paul has left him there as well. And as we considered last week, Crete is not you know, the picturesque, uh, peaceful paradise that we imagine in the Mediterranean. It was a rough place. It was a place filled with corruption and wickedness. And so Titus is no slouch. He is one of Paul's number one guys, his go-to guys. And so he leaves him there. But it would be too much for Titus to even solo pastor a church alone, let alone pastor all the churches in Crete. Because without godly leaders to continue shepherding these fledgling churches, they could easily stagnate or plateau, or even worse, uh, false teaching could infiltrate which again we see Paul confront in our next passage through Titus and so in order for this shepherding work to continue Paul and Titus need more boots on the ground a friend of mine is a professional juggler and he often ends his show with a plate spinning act he's one of only a handful of people that do this plate spinning act and he's local so you've maybe seen him before Uh, but the, the the show ends with he has these sticks like these thin poles and then he spins plates on them and it would be cool enough to just do that with one but he does it with dozens of them across the stage and so he spins up a plate moves on to the next one spins up a plate moves on to the next one spins up a plate and moves on to the next one you can imagine though and if you've seen the show or you've seen a plate spinning act before you know that those plates need attention that he needs to go back and spin up that plate again because if he just leaves them they're going to just wobble and topple This is like discipleship. It is the long, slow work of shepherding. It's tending to each and every one. And as amazing as it is, if the church planting movement stopped at step one of what I talked about is that ordinary pattern, just make disciples by sharing the gospel, that is amazing. That is essential. But if it stopped there, we could see that that is simply not enough. And unfortunately, too many modern missions movements have fallen for the desire of just purely reporting back numbers, and they don't continue in the work of building into genuine growing disciples, Uh, which would look a lot like my juggler friend, spinning up one, spinning up the next one, spinning up the next one, even if he went for dozens and dozens in a row. If he never went back to make sure that the first ones were still spinning, he would be failing at his job. And this returning discipleship we see is, is consistent through Scripture. It's modeled well by the Apostle Paul and others. But we see that at some point, a few can't do it all. It's important that they appoint other elders to carry on this work. And so what this would look like in this juggling, plate-spinning metaphor is if uh, my juggling friend then you know, got a few qualified and competent people from the crowd to come up and tend to just a few plates, make sure that they keep spinning. Uh, And then that way, every little group of plates would be spinning effectively. It would be a healthy, great situation. It would be a very boring juggling show because you would just be looking at plates spinning on sticks. Uh, But you can see, if that was the case, how plates wouldn't be dropped. Godly elders can help churches grow to be healthy. But before we get too far, we need to answer the questions, what and who are elders now, the passage gets explicit about what an elder must be, and we're going to get to that in a moment, but a few important notes before we get there. First, Scripture makes it clear that the office of elder is reserved for men. First Timothy chapter 2 makes it most explicit that it is men who are to teach and to exercise authority in this way in the church. Here at HGC, we firmly believe that God created men and women equal in worth and dignity. They're made in the image of God. And as much as society says so, value does not come from what you do. Value comes from who you are. Both men and women are valued parts of this church. And all of us have important, even vital roles to play. We believe that the Bible teaches consistently that men and women are made uniquely and by God's good design, differing and complementary. As countercultural as this statement is, men and women are not interchangeable. Countless gallons of ink have been spilled on this topic, and it's beyond the scope of the time we have this morning. Paul doesn't address it uh, in this passage, apart from his choice in pronouns and words that he uses. But I want to acknowledge that this is a hard and even sensitive topic. And so, if you want to talk more about this, I would gladly welcome further conversation after the service. Second, we see that the ideal and even ordinary pattern is what we would call a plurality of elders. Plurality, which is just a fancier way of saying more than one. There's there's a multitude, a multiple multiplicity. Is that a word? Uh, There's there's multiple elders in a church. Scripture doesn't specify a number of elders. Uh, for what a church needs. Like, oh, every church needs X amount of elders or uh, it doesn't give like a, a quota that needs to be met by. as the church grows, you must have this many elders per person. There's practical, you know, logic to some of those things uh, but scripture doesn't give us that kind of clarity. What it does though is it does always speak of elders in the plural like this. Elders in every town. Uh, so we see this plurality as at least what we should desire but the qualifications are clear explicitly clear through scripture. And so it's important that we as a church aren't hasty in appointing elders just to gain a plurality uh, if people aren't qualified. Uh, we can do a good thing for in the wrong way and that's not a good thing. But it is as we see a few verses later, the elders' responsibility to oversee, to steward those that God has entrusted to their care The Bible uses terms for a pastor or a shepherd, elder, and overseer interchangeably. Each word communicates a bit of nuance to the office, but it's not talking about multiple jobs or offices. Here at HGC, our titles are a little bit bound by our governing documents, but according to the Bible, Alex and I are both pastors. We are both elders. What we do may look different at times, uh, just as we see in the New Testament, some men are able to give themselves completely to the ministry of the word in preaching, uh, freed up from other vocational work. But even though I have more time to put in uh, to this work than Alex does, we are both pastors. And it may feel strange, but it would not be wrong at all to refer to Alex as Pastor Alex. That's what he is. The work of a pastor or an elder is to shepherd God's people Hebrews 13 is a serious uh, chapter of the Bible. It's specifically Hebrews thirteen seventeen. I want to look at. And it gives both a, a serious charge to members and to elders. Hebrews thirteen seventeen says this, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is the work of a pastor, to keep watch over the souls that God has entrusted to us. I will give an account for you who are a part of this church. I will report to the chief shepherd how I shepherded you. It is the mission of pastors to, as Charles Spurgeon described, conduct personally guided tours to heaven. It is our aim to have those under our care to stand before the Lord one day and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. And so how can you help us in this? Please pray for us. As I wrote this part of the sermon, I could feel the anxiety building up. As I think about this kind of stewardship, the weight honestly feels crushing. I need to remember that it is God and God alone who save souls? But he sees fit to have pastors and elders serve as under-shepherds of his sheep. Sheep that have been purchased with the blood of Christ. And so this is a serious charge. And so please pray that Alex and I would steward well all that God has entrusted to us. And the author of Hebrews makes clear, let me read it again, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now, this is not unquestioning submission. I know Alex would agree with me in saying, if Alex or I teach or lead you in a way that is out of step with the gospel, the Bible is clear that you, as members of this church, have the authority to not submit to us. Paul is explicit about this in him, for himself in Galatians 1. If he, he says, if I came preaching another gospel, let me be accursed. It's the responsibility that lies in the hands of Christians to guard the gospel in this way. And you do that for the sake of your soul. You do that for the sake of your brothers and sisters beside you. You do that for the sake of my soul. If I'm preaching another gospel, you need to love me enough to tell me and to not just nod your head. 1 Timothy 5 gives instructions for rebuking elders who persist in sin. As we talked about, 2 Timothy chapter 4 talks about the responsibility being in Christians for those that they choose to sit under. It's to be clear, though, this is talking about sin. This is talking about compromising the gospel. Uh, Galatians 1 and 1 Timothy 5, 2 Timothy 4 are not talking about issues of wisdom or prudence or even preference. But it is critical, I want you to hear this, this is why this passage matters for you today, it is critical that the church is careful in whom they appoint as elders, so that you can joyfully obey commands like Hebrews 13, 17, so that you can joyfully submit to those who God has called to shepherd this church, and to keep watch over your soul. This is exactly why Paul spends a lot of time in this passage looking at These qualifications. We've considered what the church needs, but what do elders need to be? Who do they need to be? That's our second point, what elders need to be. This is not the only passage in Scripture that talks about qualification for elders. There's a lot of overlap in the passages that do, but they're not identical, and so we can gather from that that they are not necessarily comprehensive. They do each in their own way and collectively demonstrate clearly that what an elder needs to be is not the most impressive, not the most powerful, not the most successful, not the most educated, not even the most gifted. An elder needs to be a man of character. And Paul mentions twice in this passage that elders are to be above reproach. Above reproach. Maybe your Bible say blameless. And an important distinction as we consider this word or this repeated phrase is that blameless is not the same as spotless. Blameless is not the same as spotless. Even the godliest of elders are sinners. Trust me, I know one pretty well. Elders are to live above reproach, to live lives that commend the gospel and don't disgrace it. Elders are called to live above reproach to be examples from the flock, for the flock. We see that in Acts chapter 20. We see that in 1 Peter chapter 5. And so how does this living above reproach take, take shape? We see that first, that this is true in the home. They must be above reproach in the home. It says that he is to be the husband of one wife. This is literally meaning to be a one-woman man, a one-woman man. This doesn't disqualify men who are not married. Paul was not married. He's not disqualifying himself. Jesus was not married. I'm certain he would have been a qualified elder. But for men who are married, we see that the way that he shepherds in the home is proving ground for the way that he will shepherd the church. A one-woman man or the husband of one wife is to be a man completely devoted to his bride. Does he have wandering eyes? Is he flirtatious with other women? Is he addicted to pornography? An elder must demonstrate exemplary faithfulness to his bride. Denny Burke writes this, If a man cannot love and lead his wife like Christ does the church, then he cannot love and lead Christ's bride. Marriage is a proving ground of church leadership. Marriage is a proving ground of church leadership. We see this is similarly modeled in uh, parenting. If the elder is a father, we see this in the second half of verse 6. And if his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Now this can be a tricky verse and a lot of people have spent a lot of time talking about this verse. But we can get a bit of clarity to this verse by looking just a little bit broader uh, at this, than just at this verse alone. Because taken at first value, we could look at that section and say, uh, his children are believers. So does that mean a man is disqualified if uh, any of his children are not Christians? It's a great question to ask. That's not a foolish question. Uh, But this can get us into multiple problems as we consider this. Because first, we don't have the power to save anybody. We cannot save souls. It's not up to us whether our children or anyone becomes a Christian Now, we have a massive role to play. That's exactly why it's in here. We have a massive role to play in bringing up our children, the discipline and instruction of the Lord. But it is only God who saves. Only God who saves. Because you could easily find a a flaw in this logic if you said, oh, you know, all his children these believers. What if he has children who are believers and his wife gets pregnant? Uh, Well, now he can't be an elder anymore. He's disqualified. The baby is no longer a believer or is not a believer. And so it's a little bit facetious of an argument, but I think we can see how it breaks down. The word translated here in the ESV as believers can and often does mean exactly that. So that's why that word is there. But your Bible may translate it differently or have a footnote like mine uh, that says, or are faithful. This gives us a little bit more clarity. Especially as we look at a parallel passage in uh, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3. And as we consider broadly, just our understanding of conversion. But first Timothy chapter three, verses four and five says this: He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? We can't save the souls of our kids on our own volition. But as a pastor of God's church, the way we manage and lead our homes has bearing on how well we will manage and lead the household of God. We see that, that language as God's steward in our passage in, in Titus. That's exactly this kind of language. He's a, he's a manager of the household. He's a steward of what's been entrusted to him. And so if, as our children grow, our children are wild, out of control, insubordinate, We need to be able and willing to ask honest questions about how we as elders or uh, as prospective elders are leading our families because God's word makes it clear that we need to look at the way we shepherd those already under our care before we consider adding to our shepherding duty. So elders must be above reproach in the home. It's notable, make note of this in your mind, that this is such a, a large portion of These qualifications, an elder must be above reproach in the home. They also must be above reproach in the heart. They must be above reproach in the heart. Must an elder be a dynamic speaker? Must he be a successful businessman? Must he have a master's degree? Not according to the Bible. An elder must, though, be a man of character above reproach. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. We get a long list here of what this man must not be, five things, and then we get... Uh, what this man must be. Six things. And so we're going to look briefly at each. We're going to be moving quickly, but I want you just to remember this is true as we consider prospective elders. This is true of holding up the measuring stick against current elders. And This is also true for your life if you're a Christian. Each of these we can find in scripture. These are not specific to elders. And so consider yourself. And kids, uh, listen and look through this list of things and consider this is, this is an example of what it means to grow in godliness, what it means to grow in maturity and to honor God with your life. And so we're going to move quickly, but let's move. First, an elder must not be arrogant. An elder must not be arrogant or prideful. You can see, though, and I, I'm sure you understand this, that we can fall for the worldly standards of what would be a powerful man, But here we see that that's not only not the ideal, it's disqualifying. Arrogance can manifest itself in many ways, whether that's being self willed, cynical, unteachable, or stubborn. These are not attributes of a servant leader. An arrogant man may look cool and strong and decisive, but he does not look like Christ. Are you arrogant? An elder must also not be quick-tempered. An elder must not be hot-headed. I remember reading a book talking about pastoral ministry, and it was saying one of the best ways to assess whether a man was qualified for the office of an elder was to invite him to play baseball and call him out when he was very obviously safe and just see how he reacts. It tells you a lot about a man. The same could probably be said for the way he conducts himself in traffic when no one else is in the car. Or how he responds when someone disagrees with him. Are you quick-tempered? He must not be a drunkard. To be a drunkard is to be lacking self-control. An elder must, most obviously from the text, not be an alcoholic. But he must not have vices. The calling of an elder is to give up himself for the sake of others. And if he can't give up alcohol or drugs or Video games or food, for example. How will he give up himself for the sake of others? Are you a drunkard? and Do you have vices? He must not be violent. Very similar to a quick temper. An elder must not be a brawler or a bully. The King James says he must be no striker, whether physically or otherwise. Some people love a hearty debate but too often you know that that just is is masking uh, what often crosses the line of someone who just loves to argue. This man loves to play devil's advocate. He must win. And he may even physically lash out. Of course, this cannot be an attribute of someone with God-given authority. Are you violent? He must not be greedy for gain. Is he in it for what he can get? Is this man desiring to be an elder for the clout, the respect, or the authority? In the case of staff elders, is he in it for the money? It is essential that churches consider this before appointing people as elders, or else there will be a toxic culture that exists within a church. You cannot obey Hebrews 13, 17 and submit to your elders if you constantly suspect them of having ulterior motives. Every decision elders make will be tainted with suspicion. An elder must not be in it for shameful gain. Your pastors and elders are keeping watch over your souls. They need to be trustworthy in all things. Are you always asking what's in it for me? Are you greedy for gain? And here we see that the list changes from what elders must not be to what elders must be. And note that this is not what they should occasionally do or what they want to do. This is who they are. They are to be above reproach in the heart. And so an elder must be hospitable. Is his home open? Does he care for the needs of others? Is his life open? Is he known? Is he a friend? Does this hospitality stretch beyond his close friends? Hospitable here literally means lover of strangers. Lover of strangers. If no one in the church has close relationships with him or no one has been in his home, then this is not who he is. He is not hospitable. Are you hospitable? He must be a lover of good. Not just a doer of good, but a lover of good. He doesn't just possess the virtue of doing the right things. He loves the right things. He loves the things that God loves. And I love how Trevor prayed for that earlier. And he hates the things that God hates. How does this man spend his time, his energy, and even his money? What does that convey about what he loves? Are you a lover of good? Must be self controlled. Someone who is self controlled is not controlled by his passions, lusts, or idolatries. Sexual decency could certainly be implied here. A self controlled elder operates not off his own agenda, but off of God's agenda. This is such an important attribute that Paul mentions it five times in these first two chapters, and only once is he referring to elders. Are you self controlled? He must be upright. An upright man follows God's standard for righteousness. This is so closely related to the next verse. He must be holy. This does not mean perfect. We've already looked at this. But an elder's knowledge of the truth must accord with godliness. Remember, we looked at this last week in chapter 1. Knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. An elder is to be set apart, to be devout, to be pious. Both in public and in private. This is closely connected with what comes before and it's lived out in what comes after with uh, an elder must have a disciplined life. Because a disciplined person has their emotions, their impulses, their desires under control. A disciplined man is not lazy. But a disciplined man is also not a workaholic. And this manifests itself in every sphere. A disciplined elder is a man who is mastered by the word of God and led by the spirit of God. We see these hitched all together in passages like we'll see in a couple weeks in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You'll recognize that verse taken almost verbatim and put into our church covenant. This is such a mark of what it means to be a Christian. But each of these is beyond any of us. This is the Spirit's work in us that can change us in this kind of way. Because I know myself. I know how much easier those first five attributes come than the last six. This is the sin that clings so tightly to me, and I am sad to say I sometimes cling so tightly to. And this is true for each of us. All have sinned. All of us are prone to live in ways that are counter to God's will and God's word. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel that not only saves, it transforms. The gospel is that God knows how we are not only unqualified for service, we are unqualified for fellowship with him. Our sin separates us from right fellowship because God is perfect. He is holy. But the good news is that God sent his own son to live a truly sinless life to live a life that was upright godly and holy jesus christ lived a life that was not only above reproach and blameless it was sinless and spotless and he the spotless lamb bore the weight of your sin and mine on the cross so that you and i could be made right with god As he rose from the dead and he reigns in heaven as our savior forever. He is head over the church that he shed his blood to purchase. And the call of the gospel is to repent and to believe, to turn from your sin, to trust in Jesus for salvation. We trust in his uprightness, an uprightness we could never have. And as if that wasn't good enough, that's not the end of the story because he gives us his spirit to dwell in us when we're saved. Not only to save us, but to change us from the inside out. passages like this are a reminder for each of us how far we fall short. But the call that God has placed on our lives is to imitate him. We can only do that by his spirit, breathing life into our once dead hearts. So looking at a list of character qualifications that we can't measure up to is a declaration that we are not saved by works. We are saved by grace alone. Considering how elders are to live above reproach is to thank God for the gift of earthly shepherds, but not to rest any kind of ultimate hope in them. We rest our hope in our chief shepherd, who is far above all rule and authority. In this gospel that saves and transforms Christians, it is the gospel that absolutely must be held firmly by any elder. It's our last sub-point here for what an elder must be, holding firm to the trustworthy word. Because the trustworthy word is the gospel. It is the good news. It is the knowledge of the truth that accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. An elder must be a word-driven man. Anything less is maybe a good leader, but he is no shepherd. In 1 Timothy, Paul gives one qualification that is, not simply character that, that would be for every Christian, and that is very explicitly able to teach. And we see the same thing here, less direct in Titus, but also expanded in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Any platform, attribute, or skill that an elder builds on is inadequate for his, this call that God has placed on his life. To care for souls, one must be armed with the soul-filling word. To rebuke those who contradict the word, he doesn't need good advice. He needs a good grip on the gospel. An elder's calling is to shepherd the sheep that the Lord has entrusted to him. And he does that through an example of a godly life, of living this life above reproach. And he does this by teaching sound doctrine, or, or literally healthy teaching. And he must use that same trustworthy word to rebuke those both in and outside the church. He builds on the foundation of God's word. And as we think about elders, we need to ask, is this man driven by the trustworthy word? And this doesn't just mean, does he read it? That's the bare minimum. But does he run to it when he faces a problem? Can he communicate its truths effectively and clearly? Is he bold enough to defend when it's questioned? Does he hold firm to it? Are his knuckles white from his grip on God's word? God calls men of character to shepherd his church. This is a high priority in every church in the New Testament, and it needs to be for us today. Pray that God would raise up more men of character to shepherd this church Pray the same for other churches around us. Men, pray for yourselves. Wives, pray for your husbands. Members, pray that men at HGC would aspire to these qualifications and aspire to the office of an elder. Christian, pray that these character qualities would grow in your own life. Pray that we as a church would be filled to the brim with members who are willing to give their life for the sake of Christ's bride, whether that be as a pastor, as a deacon, as a missionary, or as a seemingly ordinary yet truly extraordinary member of this church. Pray for Alex and me to weed out sins and shortcomings and pray that the spirit would continue to mold us into the men that he needs us to be. Pray that we persevere in being above reproach in the home in our hearts, and that we would hold firm to the trustworthy word so that we wouldn't become disqualified and bring reproach on the gospel. Pray that we would grow as a church in seeing authority as a good gift from God, not something that's tainted by sin. And finally, pray that we would grow in being a healthy church. Pray that for our sake, that in the care we take in raising up and appointing elders, we would be strengthened as a church. But also pray that the investments we make in growing as a healthy church will be investments that pay off for the years that we will never see for God's glory alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, for the clarity that we have in scripture of what you desire for those to be under shepherds of your church. God, we thank you that there is absolutely no question in our minds if we have an open Bible of how much you care for your church. And so help us to put as much care in the appointment and shepherding duty of elders for the history of this, this church, for, for as long as this church exists, help us to glorify you by stewarding well all the, those that you've entrusted to our care. and Help the members of this church to know this passage and passages like it well, both for their own sake, to grow in godliness, and as they do the important work of recognizing those that you've entrusted this duty to. God, we thank you for Christ, our good shepherd, the great shepherd, our chief shepherd, who is our true authority. Help us to behold him as we share in the Lord's Supper now, the perfect example of servant leadership that unites us with him and with one another. It's in his name that we pray, amen.